Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are in the midst of a great, if I could call it that, discussion on uh, substance-related and addictive disorders, but most specifically stimulants. Uh, last podcast, uh, we went over the criterion, covered the criterion uh, for a diagnosis according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Stimulant Use Disorder, uh, and have said historically during these podcasts uh, that whatever the substance you might be identifying uh, in today's nomenclature <laughs> within the industry, we call it use disorder, uh, formerly was known, again, another historical sort of uh, a reference or context, was known as abuse and dependence. Uh, instead of that appearing on the surface to be two separate conditions, uh, abuse and dependence, with uh, maybe very little interconnectedness or maybe having difficulty seeing the connection between the two, I believe the American Psychiatric Association, part of their uh, thought behind changing the term or the, the title of this particular category of disorder to use, versus, again, abuse and dependence, was to capture the idea or the notion that it is connected. <laughs> now, maybe that's an obvious thing, uh, but to look at it at the surface, you say, well, I'm just abusing the substance, uh, whatever it is. Alcohol, I just misused it. It does not sound as bad as saying I am dependent upon it or an alcoholic, and really it isn't in terms of the diagnostic criterion, either then or now. However, what it seems to suggest is that they may be two separate conditions. You can be abusive of it and not end up becoming dependent. Uh, and to some extent, there is some truth in that, uh, partially because factors might include early intervention or at least, relatively speaking, uh, intervention before it progresses to that extent. Uh, it can also mean that uh, a person in, with some level of awareness uh, in some sort of uh, place of, of improved or enhanced insight, uh, as a result, I guess what I'm trying to track down there, is just as a result of psychotherapy or some sort of a behavioral health intervention, can arrest the progression uh, before it becomes dependence. But the truth of the matter is, anyone who is dependent has been at some point uh, guilty of abuse. They've misused the substance. And hence, when you talk about it, you really want to capture how those two things not only connect, but the actual progression of that. The, the notion that it is a use disorder, but whether it is abuse or dependence, you're talking about one and the same thing rather than two separate sort of things. I, I hope that made some sense. But last podcast, we went over, again, the diagnostic criterion, and we said that that was very similar for those of you who have been paying attention, having heard prior podcasts maybe and paying attention, sound very similar to opioid use disorders uh, or the diagnostic criterion to uh, determine whether somebody is guilty of, again, opiate uh, use or misuse, uh, abuse, and dependence. Uh, and the reason being is, it is that for all the different categories, uh, 
of substances that the American Psychiatric Association includes or has considered inclusive uh, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, and with that, uh, the notion is that regardless the substance, the pattern of abuse and dependence is always the same. So if it was included, if it made it into the manual, it has the potential to be abusive as well as dependent. Uh, and there's very few substances that, that uh, would otherwise not have some potential for not only abuse but dependence. But these are, again, ones based on the diagnostic criterion. The central feature of it is not only does it cause you trouble, but it's persistent trouble. And in the face of persistent trouble, because of continued misuse, uh, one then measures dependence. Now, that can be all psychological, and uh, we're, we'll, we will, we are going to, we will at some point in the not-too-distant future discuss cannabis, which is more along the lines of psychological dependence uh, for most individuals than it is physiological dependence with tolerance with, and withdrawal considered. But even so, uh, any substance could potentially be psychologically... <laughs> a person could become psychologically dependent upon it. It could be abused, and with that, a person can become psychologically dependent upon it. Uh, not all substances have the same degree of physiological dependence, again, to tolerance and withdrawal. But, but again, once more, the notion is that's really what the diagnostic criterion are all about, is demonstrating not only does it create problems, across those dimensions of social and occupational, uh, functioning, health, etc. But you can't stop it. And that's the dependence part. Whether it is for physiological reasons, tolerance and withdrawal, or just simply because you think you need it, uh, there's the psychological dimension to it. So we put stimulants in the same category. And what were the two stimulants that we identified as most commonly misused uh, in our uh, research study that we uh, have uh, referenced throughout, again, this discussion on substance use disorder. Uh, cocaine was the second most addictive, and how do you know it's most addictive? Because it's the most addicted substance in the United States. Uh, and that falls under the category cocaine of a stimulant. Uh, also, though this study was a little older in the sense that it doesn't capture as much the most immediate trends in drugs of choice and uh, misuse, abuse, dependence, but with that, methamphetamines would fall in the same category, as well as amphetamines. Uh, so, those are the two substances that that are probably most recognizable, identified as most recognizable in our prior podcast, also in the study. Uh, so we focused upon those. But it could be any stimulant. And how do you know it's a stimulant? Because it has a certain effect. Uh, if we could see it biologically, we could probably measure it in more biological sort of terms. But 
lacking a laboratory <laughs> and a way to do that biologically to the degree or extent that might require, uh, we do that in just simple empirical observation sort of terms. So I thought I'd spend a few moments on today's podcast discussing what it is to be intoxicated with the stimulant before we uh, conclude the podcast today discussing uh, treatment options. So stimulant intoxication begins with, as this, this again makes all the sense in the world, recurrent use of an amphetamine-type substance, cocaine or other stimulant, such as methamphetamine or amphetamines. It also must have clinically significant problematic behavioral or psychological changes that are associated with the use. And here are some examples of what that means. You feel euphoric, which is really happy. Or you could have, when pushed far enough, enough in your system, affect blunting, which could be described as a restriction of affect, and all affect is a mood, emotion. So you can be really euphoric, happy, which is an emotion, or you could have affect blunting, which would be emotions removed. The person seems to be constricted, has less emotion or affect. And again, that's probably dependent or contingent, it's a better word, upon what they're doing in the, to the extent of how much, how often, but also at what point they are in any particular episode of use. On the front end, you're going to get this euphoria, and at some point when your body is finally getting close to the place where it's starting to lose that effect because that stimulant is being removed from the system or over protracted prolonged use your body simply is wearing out you're probably not going to single episode single use uh, particularly you're probably going to start to go through tolerance with tolerance withdrawal and the backside tolerance withdrawal is always again opposite of the drug effect. And though I said a single, and then I kind of mixed that with fatigue, uh, chronic use, it looks the same if you measure that episodically in terms of a single person's life. On the front end, they're going to get more euphoria. On the back end, they're going to get more of the withdrawal. And it's going to load that way. Somewhere in the middle, when you cross that line, the progression, again, the continuum uh, from simply abuse even to dependence. It's got the same sort of prototype, the model, what it looks like as you observe it empirically. It's going to look the same because after prolonged use, the body does at some point develop sufficient tolerance and with that, then, it's harder to get the high, the effect of the drug, and you're going to experience more of the withdrawal 
because your body has gotten intolerance used to the drug. That's called homeostasis. That's normal. That's what's supposed to happen. It keeps us alive in a very basic way. So you can't undo that. But what you should take from what I'm saying is that it will always get worse rather than better with prolonged use. And hence why there is never a good end to addiction. There is never good outcome. It does not enhance, again, we've used terms such as quality of life, could be actually lethal, uh, have lethality, risk attached to it, which includes a lethality, uh, but certainly the quality of life degrades. We're not adaptive. And in that way, not only are we not happy people, content people, uh, but it messes up all of the measures of contentment, satisfaction, which tells us we're getting everything we need to have not only optimum life, but the best life possible. So, there's clinically significant problematic behavioral psychological changes, euphoria, effective blunting. There's changes in sociability. And all sociability means is your ability to be social or connect with other people. To the plus, maybe on the front end again, early stages of either intoxication uh, or the progression of uh, that whole disease model of stimulant use, abuse to dependence, you're going to be more social, especially if you're happy and you're euphoric. But it turns south, no offense to the Southerners, but sour as it goes along the way. There is also hypervigilance, to the point I should get back to uh, before I leave this, I want to go back and say to the point of being disconnected from others. And all addictions eventually, as they all go south, <laughs> again, no offense to Southerners, as they go in that direction, really always also leads you to a point of isolation. You're in your own head. You're in your own world. You don't connect to other people. <laughs> Why? Hopefully, the people that you're around aren't using substances, so they don't know anything really much about what you're going through. It's hard for them to relate to that. They've chosen a different direction in life, never found themselves caught up in this particular sort of problem. But even if you're hanging out with other addicts, they're going through the same thing you're going through. And so if you're socially isolating or withdrawing, if you have effective instability, uh, blunting, not instability, well, you have effective instability as well, uh, emotions, uh, mood swings, um, ups and downs. But if you're blunted, you're not connecting socially, you're going to be isolated. The people around you are not going to connect with you. Hypervigilance. Uh, stimulants go to the sympathetic side of our operational systems. In previous podcasts, podcast we discussed the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic. Uh, I'm not going to go into all that detail today. I do want to make sure, though, if someone has not heard any of our prior podcasts, they at least understand basically what we're talking about in today's podcast. So I will spend a moment 
just reminding those that did pick up prior podcasts and informing those who might be listening for the first time. The sympathetic nervous system is about fight or flight, as we call it. Norepinephrine and adrenaline. It makes you keenly sensitive to threats and danger and such in such a state of hypervigilance. It's adaptive because you need to be aware so that you don't end up being harmed. That's survival. That's preservation of the body. That's adaptive. But anything that is a stimulant is most likely then going to go in the direction of the sympathetic nervous system to the extent that it may actually, as with hypervigilance, mimic almost exactly what it's like to have a norepinephrine adrenaline dump in your system. More naturally, without the use of an artificial substance or artificial stimulation through that substance, you are threatened. Something is scary. Something has brought about an awareness of risk, which then precipitates on an emotional level some degree of fear. But the fear is norepinephrine and adrenaline preparing you to either, with fear, run away from it, flight, or in that state of alarm, be prepared to defend yourself if you can't escape it. When you take cocaine and methamphetamine, you are living that world, that life, that frame of cognitive, mental awareness, as long as you're using the substance. Yes, there is a certain degree of euphoria that goes with stimulants. Most often, though, it is not pleasant because there is also, more predominantly so, this agitation. I said affective instability a moment ago. It is the emotions that are stirred up, and they're stirred mostly in the direction of not mellow, not content, which would be the parasympathetic. Rather, it would be toward the end of fight or flight, threat, anxiety, worry, apprehension, obsession, <laughs> rumination, thinking way too much. And in your mental thoughts, all of them, as hopefully you can tell by now, are going to be salted or flavored negatively, expecting even, anticipating even something bad happening. Why? Because your body is telling you that on an emotional level. You're going to begin to think of all the bad, the possibilities, the risks. Hypervigilance is actually in some ways also being on the lookout for risks. Now, whether or not that is exactly what we mean when we say echo chamber in today's sort of world, culture, nonetheless, if it is in your own head and you're repeating the same themes with your thoughts, being directed toward the same themes over and over and over again, 
you're going to be reinforcing the very thing every time you think it. So whether or not it's all going to be drug-induced, you're going to be cooperating with that. If the drug makes you hypervigilant, it's probably also going to make you agitated, defensive, prepared to fight, fearful, anxious, and your thoughts are going to be aligned with that, what is it that's going to happen? Something's going to happen. How do I know? I just have a feeling something is going to happen. And now I'm looking for all the possible things. And even if I can't find one, I know something is going to happen bad. And I'm going to put this on something. Could be people, paranoia. Could be situations and circumstances, but it's not pleasant. It's not a good high. It can be very uncomfortable. It can be very disconcerting. It can be upsetting. It can be negative. It can be fatalistic. Again, you get the idea. This is what it's like to be on a stimulant. Interpersonal sensitivity which basically means that hypersensitivity I just mentioned, mentioned anxiety, tension, or anger. Why tension? Because your muscles, your body is preparing you to run away or to kill it, to fight it. Uh, your muscles are going to become tense, prepared, readied for combat or escape. And literally so, after it's all over with, fatigued. It can be worse than an exercise workout. Just using a stimulant, it has the same effect. Stereotyped behaviors, I mentioned obsessions, and that's where compulsions come in. Where there's an obsession, there's always the risk of or chance for compulsions. Uh, they're sort of, again, on that continuum. But compulsions speak to not just thoughts, but thoughts, if they're obsessions, are repetitive thoughts. But you can have the same happen behaviorally, more towards your actions. And that really then is what we mean by, or the APA means by, American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual means by stereotype behaviors. Impaired judgment. Why would your judgment be impaired, you might ask? If you're thinking in the way that I just got through describing, the inclination went on stimulants for one to think, you're not going to be making good decisions. And actually, the best decision-making doesn't happen from the norepinephrine and adrenaline it does if the best decisions are reactive ones, quick, fast, absolute, simple, survival-based. But life is not like that. It's always complicated, beyond the immediate survival, that is. Once that's removed, good judgment comes from good thoughts, at least operationally so. The parasympathetic nervous system is best for that type of thinking, analytics, evaluative 
thinking. Evaluative thinking. I'll get that out. Where you evaluate, take in facts, use paradigms, construct memories, access memories, analyze data, hypothetico-deductive reasoning, abstract thought. All of that's parasympathetic. Aren't we glad that we don't have to be absolute, binary, dichotomous, rigid in all of our evaluative processing? Because life is not like that. And aren't we all glad we don't have to make split-second decisions about what to do or not to do that might then, even to themselves, be operationally descriptive of an impulse. (laughs) And they're impulsive. We do not want to be impulsive all the time. Sometimes it's adaptive. Sometimes you need to be impulsive to survive. But you don't and shouldn't be impulsive all the time. But if it comes then down to making a decision about using a particular substance or not, and all of this is the effect of the substance, and there's any possible truism to that notion of an echo chamber and a state of mind and a significant alteration of your operational paradigms, the way you look at your perspective, your perception, your conceptualization of life, it's easy to understand why addicts get into such then a pattern of impulsivity. They're never out of that frame of mind long enough to make a good decision. Why? Because they're always feeding the sympathetic side, particularly with stimulants, to the extent or degree that that never turns off. And that system, have said it once more in prior podcasts, say it again for the sake of thoroughness and catching everybody up who's not been part of the podcasts or listening to the podcast before today, those are mutually exclusive systems. When the sympathetic nervous system is on, the parasympathetic nervous system, so to speak, is off. Vice versa. But you can get caught up in this sort of movement where it gains some momentum (laughs) to the place where that's all you are, is impulsive, hypervigilant, anxious, angry, looking for some sort of cause to all the feelings because your brain operationally has stopped being able to rightly make judgment evaluate and make judgments. And you really need somebody, almost again, somebody to step in and make those decisions for you. Because until you stop the use of the substance, you are not going to be able to get the brain, the body, back to a place where you can make a good decision. And all of this, once more, is contingent upon, therefore, ongoing use of a substance. 
and if it's an illicit substance, all that goes into the use of illicit substances. On a more physiological note, you're going to have at least two or more of the following that develops during, shortly after the stimulant use. Tachycardia, which is just your heart racing. Your pupils dilate. Eyes, pupils. You'll have either elevated or lowered blood pressure, again, depending upon where you are, chronically or more episodically, in terms of drug use, the substance misuse. Perspiration or chills, same thing. Depending on where you are, you might be sweating a lot or you might feel chills. You might experience nausea and vomiting because all of this severely disrupts your upper and lower GI, which would be as absorbing nutrients, digesting food to get the nutrients out of them, excreting waste. That's all parasympathetic functioning. So if you're in the sympathetic, it's all going to shut down. Your digestion is going to be arrested. You're not going to get nutrients. Your body is going to become malnourished. Your neurotransmitters, particularly toward the parasympathetic side, all about those basic core primary drives outside of simply survival, are not going to take place. Sleep is going to be disrupted. You're not going to, again, be able to think clearly. All those things become compromised when there's too much stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. There may also be weight loss due to the malnourishment or the increased metabolism that goes with stimulants. Again, most people want to increase their metabolism, especially if they feel like they may have to lose a few pounds, to burn some fat, to uh, burn some calories before it becomes stored as fat. Uh, just the activity level burns, consumes calories. You might not be able to keep up with them from the standpoint of intake of calories, so you're going to tap into the fat, the store, storage of caloric energy, so to speak, uh, you're going to lose weight. You're going to be tired again, fatigued. Your muscles are going to ache. They're going to be sore. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. Again, psychomotor would be psychologically driven physiological responses. So agitation would be, again, some psychogenic orientation or at least include some psychogenic component. May not be what causes it initially, but becomes part of, continues then in that echo chamber again sort of way to contribute to further agitation on a motoric level, a bodily physiological level. It could also be retardation, either from that notion once more of fatigue 
or depending on where you are in terms of your use, chronic or episodic. Muscle weakness, respiratory depression, shallow breathing, chest pain, cardiac arrhythmias. You may have mental confusion, could have seizures, overexcitability, or you could go into a coma. Once more, many, many factors, greater, lesser of which would include where you are in terms of either your immediate use or your long-term use of a particular substance. The signs or symptoms are not attributable to another medical condition or better explained by another mental disorder, which could include intoxication with another substance. That could be potentiating. It could be otherwise just completely separate from that category, a completely different category of substance. So that basically is what it looks like to have stimulant use or intoxication problems. And for those of you who may have never used a stimulant to that extent, you may look at somebody else and say, oh, that's why they look that way. Now I know. And even so, if you have, for whatever reason, ever drank a little bit too much coffee, too much caffeine, or something like that, now you may know even better what it's like to extend whatever that little bit of getting into a little bit of that territory of stimulant is like for someone who uses it excessively and is not just caffeine, but amphetamines, methamphetamines, and particularly cocaine. It is not, again, pleasant. It, it always trends toward the worst. The best high, as any addict will tell you, is the first one. Everything thereafter is compromised. Makes no sense why people would become addicted if you just look at it superficially. But at the same time, if you are appreciating the discussion, today's and prior podcasts, discussions, you're beginning to understand there's just many, many factors, psychological and physiological, that play into this. So what does that mean then in terms of treatment? Well, it's basically the same as with decision-making as it was for opioid use disorders. And we used the same matrix for stimulant use disorder as we also use for opioid use disorders, different categories of substances, different effects on the body. Nonetheless, because the abuse independence, the criterion to make that diagnosis of use disorder is the same for all categories. There is then no need 
parsimony. No requirement of making any additional sort of adding anything to or making it so specific to stimulants or opiates. It is all the same, which from a standpoint of a diagnosis and treatment recommendations, making a diagnosis and treatment recommendations is, a, once again, I've used the word beauty. It is beautiful. Once you get that down, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Statistical Manual Criterion for Use Disorder, for Abuse and Dependence, see the universality to it, then it's easier not only to make a diagnosis regardless of the substance because it all looks the same at that level in terms of impairment, in terms of those criterion, and the use of the substance increasing, tolerance and withdrawal. But the same can then be said for treatment, treatment planning, and as we've discussed previously, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has a treatment matrix, different levels of care that once again are measured across several dimensions, actually six, beginning with intoxication withdrawal potential, continuing with biomedical conditions, emotional behavioral dimensions, readiness to change, relapse and continued use, and finally, number six, the particulars of the living environment. These are all things that are more patient-based or directed, the matrix, but they have to be considered when we look to then the differing dimensions of care, levels of care. Point five, early intervention. One, Outpatient, 2.1 intensive outpatient, 2.5 partial hospitalization, 3.1 halfway house, 3.3 clinically managed high intensity residential services, 3.5 residential treatment, 3.7 medically monitored intensive inpatient services, and 4.0, medically managed intensive inpatient services, which would include then not only hospitalization, but possibly long-term care additions to more standard sort of protocols that would go along with intensive inpatient care. Uh, specific individualized, personalized needs, bodily, psychological, etc. So this idea, once again, that we can run the matrix, the ASAM criterion, to determine proper placement, which really means best placement, contingent upon where the person would be in regards to their use, abuse, dependence of a particular substance means that an effective diagnosis, a good diagnosis, is always crucial to determination of proper placement 
with this in mind, optimum outcomes, success. If a person is early on in their misuse of a substance, it would only be abuse before it has had a chance with that disease model in mind to progress. Early intervention is very helpful, could be all that's necessary, educating. And if there was an abuse, an episode of abuse, educate then to prevent the need for treatment, primary, secondary, and tertiary care model. Outpatient would be more inclined for individuals who have had repeated episodes but still do not need someone to make a decision for them or to manage them with what in mind? You have to stop using the illicit substance and you have to stay alive. If you can't stop using and there is great risk of harm to yourself or others, outpatient is probably not your best option. An outpatient clinician, psychotherapist, offering psychological counseling, even if it were to be a medical doctor, as with the case of opioid use and medication-assist treatments, they can help make those decisions. But ultimately, you have to encourage first the patient's getting to a place where absent substance, illicit substance use, they can make good decisions for themselves. And with that, they stay alive. If they can't stop using, they're not going to make good decisions. The progression in that disease orientation or model is going to continue. And you're losing ground outpatient. That's why folks have to go into more restrictive care options, as we've described them in the past, including intensive outpatient, more frequent visits on an outpatient basis over the course of any given week, possibly even day, partial hospitalization, same thought, more frequent, higher amounts of intervention, Halfway house, where there is a restriction of opportunity in more psychosocial terms, the person has to check in. They can't go home at night as with intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization, but maybe doesn't require the level of care as is necessary when it comes to hospitalization. But when you get to Things like residential treatment, which is mostly then living in the facility with very limited opportunities for leaving. And if you should leave the facility for any reason during your stay there, it's supervised. Under residential care, halfway house would allow much more freedom. You'd come home to the house every night, which is probably at least an opportunity to realign or reset one's um, way of thinking if they should happen to have 
come across some situations or circumstances that began to, once again, corrupt them, move them back toward the way addicts think, coming to a place where you have a group of individuals that have a culture of recovery is beneficial. With a residential treatment approach, you don't leave except that you're supervised. Why? Because any outside exposure is too risky, not only in terms of continued use, but danger to the person. Same thing with inpatient. It is the most restrictive of all the ASAM criterion or level of care with ASAM criterion in mind. When you leave a facility, though, you may go back to, as we said in prior podcasts, either step down to residential care, further step down maybe to halfway house, maybe you could leave an inpatient and not need residential care and go to a halfway house. You would also eventually end up with outpatient care because Over the course of a lifetime, addiction emerges. It takes, likewise, time to help a person to become familiar, to establish lifestyles that are commensurate with recovery. It doesn't happen overnight. And actually, factually, It doesn't happen typically without several interventions and failures of interventions along the way. Addiction includes not only intervention, but an acceptance that interventions will fail. There's a great likelihood of a need for more intensive and restrictive care, and that Even so, the opportunity for relapse is going to be great, high. And if you look at it in terms of recovery, once more, said it in a prior podcast, it can take five to six years before you're really statistically getting your chances of sobriety within the 50% range for success. Up to that point, your 50% or greater likelihood of relapse than to maintain your sobriety. That's how powerful the effect is. Now, again, I need to qualify that by saying, depending upon the substance how far, how progressed you were in terms of the disease, the use, the abuse, and dependence. Nonetheless, if you make the criterion and you meet the criterion for inpatient care, you probably are on the extreme. You're bought into it. You're sold out to it, whichever way you want to describe that, and maybe both. And you're needing more than someone to say, you know, you really should stop this. You're really requiring someone to step in and stop you. But if you've gotten to that point, 
leaving, going back to an unrestricted environment or one of lesser restriction always runs the risk of relapsing. Why? Because that's the way the human body functions. That's the creatures of habit we are. That's how we learn. But that's also how powerful the effects of the drug has been to alter one's body chemistry even. Because the body chemistry, just simply the point of identifying tolerance and withdrawal establishes what I'm about to say, you're going to take time, take some time. It needs, you need some time. You're going to require some time to get your body back in a normal state of balance biochemically. The homeostatic response requires time, and it is a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. So, that's about all that I have to say at this moment about stimulants. Cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, the most commonly recognizable, the most addictive, and therein addicted substances in the United States, based on this survey. And with that, then, I think, we're ready to move on to a couple of substances that many people probably when I identify them, are going to say no. And should they believe me <laughs> that it's there, as in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, they're going to say it shouldn't be or there must be something else going on. Why? Because for the most part, we've used these <laughs> substances, especially of late, the last one we're going to discuss, we've used these uh, without much discrimination. You can get them. Easy access. Particularly when it comes to nicotine, it was not that long ago that anybody could get nicotine. <laughs> you could get it through tobacco, Initially, without age restriction, laws were passed. We limited the age, thus there was an illicit aspect to it for those underage. But people still can buy nicotine, tobacco. But we've also progressed now so that we don't only require tobacco. We've now refined, if you could call it that, the process of getting nicotine to vaping. And with that, <laughs> oddly enough, never considered putting age restrictions or any restriction on it initially, but then even so, age restrictions initially, and though there are now age restrictions on it, it's still, though, and it's illicit because of that, it still, though, is readily accessible. You can still buy it at the convenience store. 
maybe the supermarket, maybe the drugstore. Online, wherever you should shop, you can purchase it. But the two substances are nicotine as well as cannabis. Yes, both have the potential to be categorized or both in, are included, thus are categorized as illicit substances with abuse or misuse potential, dependence included, and specifically so, require treatment because if they're categorized by the APA as misused substances with abuse and dependence, then they're appropriate for intervention. They're appropriate to fit the model we've been putting together, establishing, that is the basis, universal basis, for making a diagnosis of illicit substance use or substance misuse as well as abuse and dependence. You can be addicted to nicotine. You can be addicted to cannabis, both of which, as with dependence, includes then trouble, problems attached to them, and hence an inability to stop when the problems begin to get you into further problems with additional complications. And as we will get, hopefully, a chance to discuss in more detail with the marijuana, the cannabis, this is particularly important when you talk about underage use and how that affects the normal biological, psychological, emotional, bodily course of development. So, with our next podcast, having said that, with our next podcast, we're going to begin looking at the diagnostic criterion for nicotine use disorder, as well as abuse and dependence, and apply the same type of treatment model, or at least ascertaining the model used for ascertaining the most appropriate and successful treatments, levels of care, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine. I hope that, again, all of this is helpful, that you find it beneficial. We're doing the podcasts to inform, to make you aware so that you can make the best decisions possible. Hopefully, with that idea of prevention in mind, but even if you've found yourself, as you're listening to the podcast, fitting into some of this as I'm presenting it in the way of disorder or difficulty, it will give you a chance to make some corrections. And should this not be enough, it would be what would be necessary then for you to reach out to get help and treatment before it becomes even more of a problem. 
Once again, I always post my email address. I want to help you, if I can, to either find the treatment you need, even if it should, the opportunity would present itself for me to help. I'll be glad to do that as well, more directly. But certainly to direct you to a good resource, one that's accessible to you where you live that will meet the needs that you present. Email me, and at least I will give you direction who to see to assist with this making this, this consideration or coming to this consideration, making the decision through consideration as to whether or not you need a particular level of care. You need some sort of intervention besides just the prevention, just the education aspect, which is really what Word with Dr. Michael David Clay is all about, informing with the hopes of prevention, but also giving you some context to the decision-making, who to go to, how that unfolds, when you go seek then the advice, the opinion of someone who can meet with you, make a proper diagnosis, and then offer through the proper diagnosis, your, you individually, you personally, of what treatment options are best for you. Obviously, I can't do that through the podcast. Or even if you email me, I'm not going to be able to do that. That's not my desire. But I can direct you to someone who can. And I will do that fairly and indiscriminately. I will not profit from that in any way, shape, or form. So, once again, if you should need any assistance, uh, email me, let me know. I'll be glad to try to help in any way I can. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And hope you will join us again next time.